Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, we're speaking with William Davison, Crisis Group's senior analyst on Ethiopia. He's on the show today to talk about the upcoming elections in Ethiopia, what we're looking for, and what it means for the big picture there and for the region. Will, great to have you back on our podcast. Yes, thank you, Alan. Thanks for thanks for having me back on The Horn. So, you know, we, we had you come on very much to look ahead towards the upcoming elections. First, though, I can't really not ask you about, you know, what continues to be the unfolding nightmare in Tigray. Uh, we had Mark Lowcock, the UN's top humanitarian official. He just declared there is famine now and that it'll get worse. Um, so, so, so what do we know at this point about the humanitarian situation in Tigray? I mean, obviously, the reports just seem to get grimmer and grimmer. Yes, no, absolutely, they do. Um, by, by by no means totally unexpected. You know, a lot of the concerns have been based around the planting season, and I think that raises the concerns about this situation getting worse because it's believed that you know, many farmers in Tigray who are very dependent on agriculture um, are going to essentially miss the main harvest this year. Um, but what Lowcock um, has, has reported is based on a sort of interagency survey: three hundred fifty thousand people in Tigray are assessed to be in famine conditions already. Um, and of course, there's over 5 million people, which is essentially sort of over 90% of the population in the region who are in need of some form of emergency assistance. Um, so you're a hugely worrying situation, which is, of course, leading to this increased focus from the US, the various UN actors and various other international actors. I think possibly what is most concerning here is that we are no closer to any sort of end to this conflict or any sort of rethink towards um, an attempt to launch um, you know, negotiations um, rather than just sort of fight this out on the, on the battlefield. And whilst there's been a bit of a lull in the fighting recently, um, it does seem that potentially both sides are preparing for a sort of new round of offensives. So given that conflict situation and this growing alarm over the humanitarian situation, um, it just builds up to an incredibly worrying picture. Yeah, that's uh, incredibly sobering. Um, we'll, we'll turn back to some of those points um, later. So Ethiopia is set now to hold these elections, uh, looks like on, on June 21st. These are delayed all the way from last year. And of course, before the, the war in Tigray started, you know, it was kind of these elections that look like the first major test of this uh, of this political transition under Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. So first of all, I think what would be helpful is to maybe explain the electoral process and what's going to happen. Clearly, it won't be held in Tigray, but, uh, you know, there are also other places. It doesn't look like it'll be held right away. So, so how will this all work? Well, first of all, um, these are elections for Ethiopia's federal parliament, and there's 547 constituencies within that. It's also elections for, or it should be elections for all of the regional state councils, the legislatures, you know, theoretically, and the now 10 Ethiopian regions, also for the two sort of self-governing city councils um, in, in Addis Ababa and Dilidawa city. And as you mentioned, there is no election in, in Tigray. Um, there's 38 federal parliament seats there. Also no election for the regional council because of the ongoing conflict. Um, and what's happened is that fairly recently, um, there was an announcement by the electoral board that mainly for security related reasons, there would not be elections in another uh, 40 constituencies on top of those ones in, in, in Tigray. And that is in areas like Western Oromia, where there is um, well, long-term chronic security problems, um, but there is a growing insurgency by the Oromo Liberation Army. 
And that is an armed offshoot of the Oromo Liberation Front. And the Oromo Liberation Front is one of the two main opposition parties in Oromia, which are not competing in this election. And they cite um, government repression um, as their reason for not competing. And that has led to a situation where the insecurity means no elections in, in parts of Western Oromia. Similar problems in Beni Shangul region um, and a sort of westerly, northwesterly region, uh, the home of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And there there is now what looks like chronic, arguably increasing violence, mostly caused by an ethnic Gumuz militia that has been attacking civilians from other ethnicities, also attacking the government. And so obviously there is a sort of insurgent, counterinsurgency dynamic in Beni Shangul. And out of the three main zones in Beni Shangul, there will be no election um, in, in two of those zones. Not a very populous area, so not that many constituencies, but a huge swathe of, of insecurity there. Um, there have also been problems in Somali region. Um, those more relate to opposition complaints over the voter registration process. And then there are other pockets of instability, uh, the Afar-Somali border, uh, an Oromo administrative enclave within a Amhara region, which has seen very serious violence recently, and also you know, some other parts of the country, including in, in the south. Um, and then most recently, and this was on the 10th of June, there was the announcement by the electoral board that due to a, uh, an administrative error regarding the printing of ballots, um, there was a number of other constituencies, and the number is not clear, where there will be no vote on the 21st of June. And they have been postponed, it looks like, to uh, the 6th of September. And finally, there was also going to be a referendum in an area known as the Southwest, which would potentially form the southwest regional state out of the sort of multi-ethnic southern nation state. There was going to be a referendum on that, and that's from sort of five administrative uh, zones down there in southern nations. That's also been postponed now until September. Hmm. So, I mean, I guess the question then is, uh, first of all, like, you know, why proceed with the elections, given that so many areas, you know, are not ready yet to cast a ballot? But then also, you know, do you expect the fact that that so many areas are not yet able to participate? Do you expect that at all to to maybe affect the legitimacy of the vote or not really? Well, I think, you know, from the authorities' perspective, the electoral board's perspective, I mean, I think giving up totally would be a sort of admission of failure. I think there are various actors who would be concerned that completely cancelling the election, largely because of this insecurity and these insurgencies, um, would be a sort of um, unwelcome concession to those armed elements. Of course, the election has been delayed already. That election delay has led to civil war in Tigray. So we can see you know, rational grounds for concerns about the consequences of a further delay, although I wouldn't expect anything as as seismic as that. And then there are the more political reasons. I mean, I think from the ruling party's perspective, best to just get this out of the way in, in whatever form they can. Clearly, it's going to be a very unsatisfactory, incomplete process. But, you know, plenty of opportunity for the ruling prosperity party led by the prime minister to claim, still claim a fairly comfortable majority, potentially, and then they can go ahead and, and form a government and, and get on with their agenda. But, I mean, in terms of the credibility question, I mean, I think that's really the, the massive issue here. Um, you know, obviously, there's no legitimacy for the election amongst many Tigrayans. Um, as I mentioned, you know, in Oromia, the main opposition parties have boycotted the process. There seems to be an increasing amount of support for this armed insurgency by the Oromo Liberation Army. 
a group just classified as a terrorist organization. So there is a fear that this election could indeed exacerbate the political problems that are driving the violence. As things stand, there is very little chance that it does anything significant to create a sort of new political consensus or really advance peaceful democratic politics in Ethiopia. So I think all of the outstanding questions about these fundamental divisions and and how to resolve them will remain um, post-election and perhaps get more acute. So, so from what you're describing, you know, this doesn't sound like a very competitive election. Um, in, in some ways, it sounds like you're describing a bit of a foregone conclusion in terms of how the, the overall vote will play out. So is that correct? And then, and then what are these elections then ultimately about? Well, uh, you know, we, we don't want to get too predictive here. But I mean, I think suffice to say, if we look at the Oromia uh, situation, for example, there's 178 federal parliamentary constituencies there. There is plenty of opposition sentiment in Oromia, uh, but there is no real uh, obvious challenger to the ruling party. So it looks potentially like quite a lot of those constituencies could go to the ruling party, possibly because of that lack of challenge, um, despite the sort of lack of popular support there. Amhara is another. There is, again, plenty of opposition support their uh, disgruntlement with the government and some challenges. But also it's quite conceivable that the ruling party will do very well there. Um, I think the other thing to note is that there are some still areas of serious interest in terms of voting day itself and the results. Notable among them is Ethiopia's overwhelming um, economic and political capital, Addis Ababa. That is quite divided politically. Your Oromo nationalists have their claim uh, to Addis Ababa. There are parties that are defending the rights of Addis Ababa's self-governing nature and its multi-ethnic citizenry. There is the ruling party, which has been campaigning fairly strongly there, I believe. It's got some prominent personalities running for office. There is the party known as Ezema, um, led by veteran politicians who sort of oppose Ethiopia's ethnic political system. And they are thought to have plenty of support um, in Addis Ababa. And then there is also the Baudaras party, um, and that's led by Eskinder Negger, who's currently on trial. Um, but a recent ruling by the Supreme Court has allowed him to be on the ballot. So the point is, in Addis Ababa, a very important location. There could be quite a competitive election there. I mean, there is the potential for some some violence, but it is also an area where there, where there is, you know, you could still still see some sort of genuine electoral activity. Let's say. I mean, how should we view the the ruling Prosperity Party at this point? I mean, it's it's kind of a successor party to uh, you know the EPRDF, of course, minus the the TPLF, which uh, more or less dominated the the EPRDF for for quite a while. So, how should we view this current ruling party? Definitely, as a continuation of the EPRDF in terms of you know what's often known as in the Ethiopian scene as the sort of party state system. You know, the Prosperity Party um, it runs federal government, it uh, monopolizes the federal parliament, um, it runs every regional state council, and, and indeed monopolizes them excluding Tigray, where there was you know, the, the conflict. Um, it also dominates the lower administrative tiers as well. Um, so there's a huge amount of incumbent uh, power and ultimately incumbent advantage there. It is also that that party state has also been accused of using the same sort of apparatus of, of dominance that the EPRDF did, maybe using government funds, maybe the local authorities, the security forces acting in the interests of the ruling party to repress opposition activity. Those allegations have also continued. Um, it has the same links with the business community. Um, its fundraising from the business community is, is believed to be very, very dominant. I mean, obviously, there's been you know, some sh- sort of ideological shifts towards an attempt at political liberalization, also moves towards economic liberalization. So we can see that as a sort of new agenda. 
The big issue around prosperity party and of course Ethiopia and Ethiopian politics in general is these federalism issues, these identity issues, the, the, the debates over the constitution. And that is when we see very serious factionalism within the prosperity party, which is also a continuation of latter-day EPRDF. For example, um, there has been a, a very serious uh, war of words recently between the Oromia and the Amhara branches of the Prosperity Party over that violence um, in that Oromo administrative enclave of Amhara. And very broadly, we can say that despite being part of the same party that is committed to the multinational federal system, the Amhara component of the Prosperity Party is probably looking for constitutional changes, which the Oromo wing of the Prosperity Party would not back. And that's because you know, Oromo politicians, the Oromo political elite, whether it's the opposition or the ruling establishment, they generally support strong, autonomous Oromia, and they generally, you know, support some Oromo nationalist claims, let's say, um, including to a greater sort of say for Oromia in the, in the running um, and a fairer share of the spoils in, in Addis Ababa, which is a hugely contentious issue. Um, so it's really over those issues, um, like I say, you know, identity politics, um, federalism, the, the potential constitutional changes where Prosperity Party is at its weakest. It's also struggled to establish itself as a party and establish a new ideology and a new structure um, because uh, it, it, you know, it has been formed during a period of such considerable uh, political turbulence in Ethiopia. And compared to the EPRDF days, do these uh, branches, are, are, are they sort of separate parties kind of like they were before or they've properly been dissolved at least technically into, into one united party at this point? What we have um, is a, a, it's a national party, um, so with a, a unitary structure. So on paper, uh, there is no formal autonomy for these branches that I'm talking about. Um, and that does give the national leadership, um, considerable power to make changes at the branches. So there is a formal loss of autonomy for those um, regional ruling parties. Of course, in the EPRDF days, the national leadership, whether the TPLF or others, um, they also found a way to, to have considerable control over the regional ruling parties and regional governments. But that, that's almost become slightly easier um, in the Abbey, Abbey era. So it is, it is a centralized structure. There is also this strong factionalism. Um, and that factionalism, you know, that stems from the fact that there is still um, plenty of sort of de facto autonomy by these ruling branches. They don't like to present themselves as just some branch um, of a national entity. They generally like to present themselves as something representing Afar or Oromo or Gumu's interests. Um, so a, a, bit of, a bit of a mixed picture. Um, there, there has certainly been an attempt to reduce um, the independence of the ruling parties, but in reality, like I say, the, sa the same sort of uh, ethno-regional factionalism and antagonism that we saw during the latter years of the EPRDF have still continued in the Prosperity Party era, and in some cases are getting worse. And, and regarding the political opposition, as we're seeing it in this, you know, in this Abi era, there, there's no real coherence to it yet, right? I mean, it's it's pretty fragmented, even between ones who are legal and ones that are that are illegal. Have we seen any sort of clear picture of, of how political opposition, you know, might emerge in this current transition? Well, the opposition is fragmented along the, the sort of ethno-regional lines, also along ideological lines. You know, those who promote ethno-nationalism and the multinational federal order and, and those who oppose it. You know, clearly we've seen some of the potentially strong ethno-nationalist forces, the Oromo Federalist Congress, that Jawa Mohammed, uh, the very powerful Oromo activist, 
joined um, in early 220. You know, he is now in jail and, and the OFC is a much reduced political force. The same for the Oromo Liberation Front. Uh, most of its leadership is in jail, so it's not as strong as it could have been. Obviously, the Tigray People's Liberation Front has gone back essentially to being a rebel movement um, in Tigray rather than being uh, what it would have been, which is the, the only opposition bloc in the federal parliament and the only regional state run by an opposition party, a non-prosperity party run region. But that's obviously you're descended into into warfare. I think the interesting and, and, and tricky questions are about the role of Ethiopian Citizens for Social Justice Party. Its leadership, you know, Bahanu Nega particularly, um, a veteran politician, long-term opponent of the TPLF and ethnic politics, involved in the 2005 electoral controversy very much. He has quite been quite close to Abiy. Certainly, certain amounts of like ideological alignment between the two parties. But Azema is a fierce opponent um, of the, the ethno-federal system. And so it's a question of, you know, how well do they do in the election? Will there be some sort of formal or informal coalition, in, you know, in some areas, you know, Addis or other places with the Prosperity Party? Will Azema work with Prosperity Party on, on, on any upcoming program of, of constitutional reform? I think that's an emerging question. But Azema is the party that has kind of capitalized on the opportunities of the transition to establish quite a strong organization with quite a strong popular base. So it will be certainly be interesting to see how they do in the election and then how they accommodate themselves with the ruling party. Also interesting questions in Amhara, where there is quite a, quite a powerful um, ethno-nationalist party, the National Movement for Amhara, that's aligned with that Eskender Nega uh, Baudaras party in Addis Ababa. Um, but it's a little bit, you know, we have to wait and see how well they do at the polls. Some, some people think that they are quite a vocal party with a certain amount of elite support, but they don't really have the organizational capacity to do well in the election and build from there. So we will have to wait and see. Mm. And, and what's the basis for the opposition in Amhara? You know, I think, I think outsiders often uh, see Abi as adhering quite closely to Amhara interests, or at least that's the narrative that's often, you know, that often comes out uh, externally. But I mean, I think the main, the main issue there is, you know, relates to the some of the Oromo Amhara frictions, um, also the tendency of, of Amhara people and Amhara political elites to oppose the federal system. Prosperity Party, the prime minister, are formally committed to the federal system. So we can see reasons for differences there. Also, you know, there were mass protests in Amhara uh, recently after more killings of Amhara and others in Beni Shangul and in Oromia. By, obviously by armed actors and also this uh, massive flare-up of violence believed to have killed hundreds of people in that Oromo administrative enclave in Amhara. Um, there were both Oromo and Amhara people who suffered there. Um, that led to mass protests. And essentially, the prime minister was accused of not doing enough, uh, being negligent in terms of protecting Amhara citizens. And whilst many people look at the situation and say that one of the problems in, in Ethiopia I'm not apportioning blame here, but but is that Abiy did not really represent the Oromo protesters who brought him to power, did not represent those quite, you know, uh, Oromo nationalist demands. Many in the Amhara camp see Abiy as a stalking horse for Oromo nationalism. They see that as a threat to the Amhara. They see an Oromo threat uh, to Addis Ababa, and that also lends themselves lends them not to um, support the prime minister and, and 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 quite the opposite. So it's this assertive Amhara agenda. Which, you know, whilst they might be pleased that the the prime minister uh, took the fight to the TPLF, um, another enemy of of many Amhara and elites and, and others, um, and indeed you know, help with the reclaiming of Amhara territory in Tigray, uh, with some of these other political disputes and conflicts, 
and controversies they see um, Abby as, as not doing enough in terms of their interests. Now, let's say Abby does win at least a majority, as I'm sure is his his plan. What will he do then? You know, what do you think his political agenda will look like? Clearly, this this vote was his kind of first political hurdle since coming into power, although the, the conflict in Tigray has sort of derailed a lot of that. Well, first to answer the question, you know, about the sort of likely eventualities here, and then just to quickly butt in with some policy stuff from from our perspective, the crisis group perspective. You know, if the prime minister wins a majority, it will be a question of building the prosperity party, the program of, of economic modernization, which has been very stop-start, so privatization of state-owned enterprises, um, some financial sector deregulation. Um, and also there is a program of sort of legislative and, and institutional reform. It's some of which has, has borne some fruit already. You know, we see a more powerful Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, for example. Uh, the electoral board has struggled uh, logistically, but is, is seen as relatively more independent from the ruling party than in the past. I think the big question mark is about you know how urgent um, Abby and those around him um, see this issue of constitutional reform. Is it perhaps seen as too divisive and too potentially destabilizing for the prosperity party? Could that lead to them going going slow, or, or will, will they see, as as many people do um, in in Ethiopian politics, will they see constitutional reform and a fairly radical program of it as the way to solve some of this chronic instability? But th- this is sort of if everything goes well, you know, if a majority is secured and we don't see a rampant. Um, or steady increase in, in destabilization, you know, whether it's from Tigray, whether it's from the, te- the regional tensions with Sudan and others, whether it's Oromia, Beni Shangul, you know, this is in a sort of good case scenario. I think from the crisis group perspective, um, it's the same old story. You know, we see massive problems now with the lack, the relative lack of inclusivity. You know, what we really need here is some sort of program of political reconciliation, whether it's in the form of the much talked about national dialogue or something else um, that would probably have to involve amnesties for some of these major jailed politicians, uh, some way of, of, of easing and ending the conflict. Um, in Tigray, because without that, there is a, a concern that uh, as the, the prime minister and his party push ahead um, with any reform agenda, especially a radical one, especially one that, that that looks at the federal system and the constitution, even if it's supported by these you know, partial allies such as Azema who are competing in the election, there is a concern that because so many actors for one reason or another have been excluded from formal politics, um, that it could lead to an increase um, in the types of violent uh, armed opposition, insurgency, counterinsurgency activity we're seeing. So it, it, there is no particular reason to think that it's going to happen at this stage, unfortunately. But we, we believe it would be beneficial for Ethiopia in the long term if this election was seen as a, a landmark in the transition where, yes, a democratic mandate was formally secured, but it was not. it, it is not really going to be one that's going to solve um, the most serious political problems. And instead, there needs to be a, a concerted effort to, to tackle them. You know, there's been lots of calls, as you said, from from us and others for for Abi to take a more inclusive approach. He's, of course, been resisting those. I'm wondering, you know, why uh, from your perspective? I mean, clearly he's making a political calculus here that the costs of not doing that outreach um, are less than the, the costs of doing so. Well, without rehearsing and rehashing, you know, all the things that have occurred during this transition, I mean, suffice to say that there was a political opening in 2018. The system was thrown open. We have moved from that very heavily controlled EPRDF system 
to something else. I think that meant that all Ethiopia's political actors needed to find a way to work with each other. Yes, to compete against each other, but also to accommodate each other. Instead, in many instances, we've seen your ideological disagreements and, and, and regular struggles for power turn into something incredibly toxic and just an increase in, in polarization in a very dangerous way, which has led to um, a return to, to armed politics and to violent confrontation as, as a means of settling disputes. So it's that gradual deterioration in managing you know, this contested political space and this contested transition that has led us to, to, to where we are. And there are many actors to blame in this, but you know, suffice to say, you know, the, the, the prime minister and his allies have been key actors. And increasingly, they have chosen the path of maintaining their power, um, consolidating power, um, and that has been at the exclusion of some opposition. Thanks. Now, turning a bit to to some of these foreign issues that, that Ethiopia is uh, embroiled in right now. I mean, Ethiopia is involved in a number of these foreign disputes. Some of those are about Tigray, of course. The GERD question, which we've talked about before in this podcast, is is flaring up again. And of course, this uh, Fashaga border dispute between Sudan and Ethiopia remains unresolved. I'm just wondering, how does Abi view these? Are they essentially, does he view them through a domestic lens primarily? And do you expect Abi might shift or moderate his stance on any of these after elections? Well, increasingly, we're seeing, you know, not surprisingly, from the Ethiopian government, including from the prime minister, that Ethiopia's integrity and its progress is being opposed by domestic and, 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 and foreign spoilers. And so you know, these problems, all of these domestic challenges and the violence are being seen in the same context as you know, the dispute over the, over the Nile, allegations that Egypt and Sudan are involved in destabilizing Ethiopia, including allegations that, that you know, they're using proxies to stoke some of these rebellions. And then, of course, this increasing U.S. pressure which Addis has portrayed as um, unacceptable sort of neo-colonial meddling. I mean, at the moment, you know, it seems like the direction of travel that your know, relations are going to worsen for fairly dramatically, particularly between Addis and, and Washington. I think Ethiopia will remain engaged with the, you know, the normal international processes, including the sort of AU-facilitated negotiations over, over the GERD. But we can also see it you know, make some sort of fairly obvious mentions of its, its potential for other international support, whether from Russia or China. I think this raises the question of the Gulf, uh, the UAE and the Saudis. You know, they will be coming under increasing pressure from the US to align with the US positioning on Tigray, on the GERD, on Ethiopia in general. So it'll be interesting to see which way they turn. One possible scenario is that you know, Abiy Abi forms a new government, but there is this dwindling popular support. There is a network um, of you know, federal urban support, support in, in, you know, in some regional capitals. But essentially, you know, it's, a, it's a government which is increasingly going to be focused on, on, on battling and, and trying to maintain battling insurgencies and trying to maintain law and order. And then I think in the international sphere, it, it does also look like it's going to be increasingly embattled and it will kind of cling on to its positions, its, its, its core positions, whether on Tigray. Um, whether on the Nile, it will, it will refuse to budge. Um, it will be increasingly disinclined um, to be influenced by international actors. But you mentioned the rising pressure from Washington. I mean, the U.S. has appointed a, a Horn of Africa envoy, Jeff uh, Feltman. What, what do you think the U.S. Is, is trying to accomplish right now um, with this new approach? And is there any sign that, you know, U.S. engagement, this new U.S. engagement is, is moving the needle at all in Addis Ababa? 
I think the U.S. A new administration and the, and the envoys and his team have, have essentially decided that the trajectory is very worrying in Ethiopia, and I think at Crisis Group we agree with that. They also um, have taken the position that the humanitarian situation in, in, in Tigray is simply intolerable, and they're trying to do something about that. I think it's understandable you know, where this U.S. concern is coming from. I think it's widely shared, including by us. The question, of course, is what to do about it. Um, there is certainly a possibility um, that the U.S. ramps up the pressure. There is talk of some quite severe um, economic measures, including blocking funding at the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which is a relatively uh, very important source of foreign exchange for the government at, at the moment and, and you know, really to, to, to backstop its economic modernization, let's say. I think you know, that dynamic does raise its own questions because Ethiopia overall does, um, is experiencing considerable political and economic fragility. Um, so there must be concerns that those types of essentially quite harsh economic measures could exacerbate the problems in Ethiopia that the US and, and, and so many actors and so many Ethiopians are concerned about. So I think it's understandable you know, to see where this US concern and energy is coming from. It's just a question of it being channeled in, in the right direction to, and, and to ensure that it's not counterproductive in any significant ways. I mean, you've mentioned a few of these, but but what's your simple answer for why you think it's been so hard for outside actors to to nudge Abi in the direction they want? You know, there's this question of trying to do of trying to push him towards national dialogue. What proponents of it, you know, like us would say, is is a more inclusive form of transition? Well, I would revert back to that, you know, the to the, the previous answer. You know, it's a question of you know these difficult um, political disagreements and relationships um, during this transition. The, the job was to manage them in such a way. Um, so that everyone is sort of sufficiently accommodated. Obviously, there's going to be winners and losers, but to ensure that those losers don't become spoilers. Instead, things just haven't worked out like that. All of these relationships and power struggles have deteriorated um, into you know something very stark and ultimately um, something very, very violent. And I think once Ethiopian political actors have, have got themselves into those types of relationships and dynamics, it's just very, very hard for international for international players to influence them. And that's particularly the case with the Tigray situation. I mean, we must remember that, you know, when the federal government launched that intervention, they said this was treasonous. Um, we have to get back our military hardware from the Tigrayans. Uh, we have to restore constitutional order, the integrity of the military, etc. And there will be no negotiations with the TPLF. Well, since then, they've classified the TPLF as a terrorist group. And those uh, leaders of the TPLF um, have, you know, mounted this in- insurgency. you just because people are very and justifiably concerned about the famine situation, it doesn't change those political calculations that have been in place since the beginning of the war and before the war and have been entrenched since the war. Um, and it, essentially, it would just be a massive concession um, from the prime minister, prime minister and, his, and his allies to take a different tack. Of course, we believe that those sorts of concessions are necessary uh, at crisis group to ensure Ethiopia's stability. Um, but ultimately, you know, people have to be realistic. It is those types of problems that mean that the, the prime minister, his allies and other political actors are unwilling to make those types of concessions. Taking a, a step back a little bit, um, you know, we, we, we've just had famine sort of declared by parts of the UN, and that's going to, you know, draw a lot of the, the focus over the coming weeks and and months, and you know, Tigray is just a part of Ethiopia, and we've been discussing these elections, which, which you know, uh, constitute a whole other part of the picture. H- how are you making sense of this big picture right now of Ethiopia? 
um, you know, and, and, and where do you know, in terms of in terms of its its overall politics, its overall stability, and, and, and where do you sort of see this all heading at the moment, the trajectory? I think it's a very worrying uh, trajectory. And I think it's it's the situation is, is very volatile. You know, we can sketch out paths um, where there is not too much increased destabilization. You know, perhaps these insurgencies are are kept in check by the federal and, and regional security apparatus and that you know, the tensions with Sudan, for example, do not blow up into something like full-scale war. But it's also possible to, you know, to see the potential for you know, increasing destabilization in Oromia, um, maybe an increased strength of the resistance in Tigray, the so-called Tigray Defense Forces, um, and that would be hugely destabilizing to the federal government. And we could also see potentially um, your know, tensions increase around the second filling of the Renaissance Dam and potentially a flare-up in the border dispute with Sudan. And that would really exacerbate the problems that could lead to very serious destabilization of Ethiopia that would impact the region. So, you know, ultimately it, it is, um, there, was, there was enough risk in the system now you know, for all these concerns about the trajectory and all of the concerns about the lack of inclusivity. I, th- I, think, I think those concerns are justified and Crisis Group and many other actors, will, I'm sure, will continue to press um, the government and other political actors to shift course here. So we can't be sure about the future. Um, there is a lot of volatility, but I think there is sufficient reasons to worry about what is already a very serious situation turning into something truly disastrous. Um, and just as, a, just as a final question to sort of wrap this up, zeroing back in again on the elections, uh, what will you be watching for, you know, when these elections do occur soon as a clue possibly for, for, for where the big picture is, is heading? Will you be watching sort of the vote results or sort of levels of violence around it or, or how foreign actors respond? What's, what, do you, what will you most be watching for? I think first we're looking at, um, you know, in, in the sort of 10 days left, um, are we going to see, you know, further problems um, leading to, you know, increasing amounts of constituencies where the vote will not be held? Um, I think Oromia is a big question. Um, undoubtedly, there will be a push from the Oromo Liberation Army, which says it's a total war with the government and is trying to stop the election. Oromia, will it show the sort of capacity to really disrupt things there? Um, and then could we see um, you know, Ethiopia's political violence spread to Addis Ababa, you know, which is quite contested in, in, in various ways? I think those will be the big issues to look at. And then, of course, in terms of the vote itself, I mean, I think in some ways the, you know, the outcome is quite predictable. But could we see you know, a, a, a more significant representation of the opposition that's still competing? I think that would show that there are serious concerns. Um, there's a serious problem with the popularity and legitimacy of the ruling party. That could also be quite consequential. Thanks, Will. It's always great to, to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much, Alan. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production, as always, of the International Crisis Group. If you want to find out more on our work or read our reports, head to our website, crisisgroup.org. I'm Alan Boswell. You can find me on Twitter at Alan Boswell. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. <laughs>